Hi, I'm Mr. G, and you're listening to Create, Explode, Repeat. Today we'll be talking with astute songwriter Jonathan Runman. Born and raised in the Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Jonathan has been writing and performing songs since he was 18. He had rave reviews in Billboard, the New York Times, and Performing Songwriter, among others. Today we talk about creativity, the songwriting process, the worst gig ever, and Jonathan's stint directing a horror movie. Yep, that happened. Tune in, find out more. All right, so now uh, we are rolling. How many episodes have you done of your uh, I've only This is the sixth episode. Oh, great. I'm, I'm happy so, to get in on the early stages. I'm getting you in at the ground floor. Excellent. That's great. <laughs> you're, 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 uh, it'll just, when I'm, it'll just be amazing. This is going to, your career is probably, it's, re, it's a boost is going to happen. I need sure. a boost. That'll be good. You should see the create, explode, repeat bump that happens for virtually, virtually everyone is this uh, is this show already up on iTunes and everything? It is on iTunes. Oh, great! I, it a, is on iTunes. I'm a big podcast listener, so I will definitely go start listening. And I did you and I meet? Maybe uh, I know we never met in person, but I I wonder if we got connected because of Paste Music or Paste Magazine. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, so I had a band called Push Start Wagon. Yeah, that had a song. Did you have a song on the same issue? I bet we were on a Paste sampler together. Maybe I think maybe. that's I, probably what I it can't was. even rem- I can't even remember what the cover was. I'm trying to think of the other time. So a friend at school, I went to Azusa Pacific University, um, gave me or showed me a copy of Sound Theology, and it blew my mind. <laughs> I I really blew my mind, and I think I had a copy that I loaned to someone, and then they just they kept it, and I was super <laughs> bummed. I was just amazed by. At first, I didn't own any double albums or anything by any bands, so uh-huh. like this was like, dude, that is a freaking lot of songs. <laughs> like, that is, I was in, I was amazed, and like, what year was that released? It, it came out in the summer of two thousand. Summer of two thousand. Okay, so I was actually I, well, I was out of school, so I'm trying to think. If it was the summer of 2000, okay, so there's uh, some friends of mine, uh, Beth and David Greku, and they had a, um, this at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, they would do shows. Uh-huh. And I don't, I, and I had another friend, John R. Williamson, he's just a really great, amazing artist. He writes like, he's super prolific like you are. He's also, uh, just writes all the time. I'm just trying to think like, I wonder if that was the time but I, the pace thing definitely makes sense because around 2005 we released a a record and and put something out but enough uh, about me yeah i think that's what Sound it was theology tell me okay so that's not your first record but it's the it's the one that i know gets a lot of a lot of love from just different people yeah i think, it, I think you hooked a lot of people there yeah that was the first album i made that really got a ton of national press and it, it sort of blew up my audience in a big way beyond what I had had before. And, you know, at that point, I had been a musician already for eight years. My first album came out in 92. And I made three mm. solo albums in that first eight years. And I did a kind of a garage band side project in, the, in that era and a, a duet album with my cousin. So I was kind of just, you know, just doing a variety of things. Uh, but Is that the Kaivama 
how do you say is oh, that Kaivama. Um, no Kaivama was much later that came in that was in that was 2010 to 2013 okay all right so i knew that was more recent really, but i didn't know if that was yeah these were really early projects that i did and uh but none of them got any sort of national traction really uh, but then when sound theology happened in the year 2000 then that it was kind of the perfect moment in the media too because the internet was just getting going but it was before there was itunes so I got mm. a ton of internet action, but st everybody still had to buy the CD physically. So it was really great because people were forced to actually order the physical CD online. And, uh, and that's when paste music was just getting rolling. And so right when Sound Theology came out, this is before paste was a magazine. They were an online retailer and they had sort of a real niche, kind of a niche market for their music and so there's only a few artists that that they would sell and it was like vigilantes of love over the rhine yeah innocence yep. mission and becky yep. hemingway and becky who i was doing a lot of music with got me connected oh. and so i i was really lucky that i got to be in that first cohort of paced artists that's pretty cool. And that got you a lot. I mean, they use that as like, hey, here's our record label. And yep. that's where, that, you know what, I'm I'm pretty sure. So that was that, were you Salt Lady Records? Yes. Yep. I mean, that's your like record label. That's, but was that's that, my record label. And Becky Hemingway's albums were out on that label too in those days. Yeah, I, rem I, I know your connection with Becky Hemingway because I remember seeing, I mean, so like, like I said, pro before then, uh, I feel like it was before then that I was aware of you. And then, but you mentioned all those artists and that's definitely like, for example, my wife and I, we were doing kind of an indie folk thing. And I mean, I definitely, Over the Rhine was my kind of gateway. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I found them, I, I found the message board, the, the orchard for Over the Rhine. Uh -huh. I was a member of that. Um, and I had been involved, my band, I had been involved with a lot of the alternative Christian rock scene, like of the early nineties, we had like the altar boy, the, a lot of the Southern California thing. I honestly, I feel like I was in kind of a bubble in Southern California because I don't know how much of that spilled out, but um, some of those groups went on to play at Cornerstone. I don't know if you ever yeah. participated or went over to the Cornerstone Festival. Yeah, you know, Becky Hemingway came, her career sort of came from the Cornerstone Festival. So she would oh, play every cool. year. And in the early, when I first met Becky, and she kind of connected me to that whole universe. Um, I got to go to Cornerstone and play in her band. Uh, I was the keyboard player in the Becky Hemingway band. And so we got to play at Cornerstone. And then in 2004, um, when Becky and I did a duet album, we both together played at Cornerstone. And that was fun because it was on the Paste, oh, that's cool. the Paste magazine had a stage there. And so we got to play on the stage along with the vigilantes 11 over the rhine and the alarm and all that stuff so that was oh really wow fun. see that now that would be a that'd be a bucket list uh was that a was that pretty i mean was that a big thing for you at that time was that or had you already kind of worked with some of them like the alarm man, that's now that would be yeah they'd be stoked <laughs> i i was clueless because i i wasn't really uh a part of any of those scenes at all before and so because of the fact that i got to work with becky i got introduced to a, a whole other universe of of bands and listeners and stuff and you and so you really weren't a part of the christian music industry at all like you weren't you know on no. a you were always kind of a independent artist and you had your own thing and it was the pace was probably the most yeah that's right label that you had right yeah because what happened was i was just kind of operating as a regular kind of indie songwriter person 
And then when I started, I met Becky in Chicago when I moved there because we had some common friends. And, and then I played in her band and did. And at that point, she was really, really busy and really, she was really taking off and getting a lot of great opportunities. So it was super fun for me to be in her band. And then I would sometimes open the show or whatever. So we ended up touring a lot all over the country. And, and uh, she had a, this huge audience of kind of a fringy Christian music fans. And she is also friends with all these bands that it turns out were quite famous that I'd never heard of. And uh, so then all of a sudden I got to get to know all these people and all these artists. And it was this really cool, um, just a really cool way to meet uh, hundreds of new listeners. Mm. Was this like the silos and, and, or is this, is that later? Uh, and well, the silos were what I was listening to as a teenager and who I, you know, I ended, that was more like American, uh, proto-Americana scene stuff. But I'm talking like the bands that I, that Becky kind of connected me with was like Innocence Mission and oh, Over the Rhine and, and, you know, and Vigilantes of Love and Bill Maloney and, uh, yeah. and the 77s. And like, I, oh, wow. I mean, I didn't yeah, I know, them. I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. Oh wow! And so, so you know, that's I grew up with a lot. That, that now some of those I grew up with. Okay. In fact, the, the fringy groups for me, Over the Rhine was more out on the fringe because they really weren't a. They really weren't going the hey we want to be on a, uh you know on a Christian record label. Yeah. I mean, they they just they were struggling with you know what's this is my faith I I'm a faith I have my faith yeah and I have my art and sort of there was that I remember it used to be a real issue in the nineties. I'm kind of over that now, but, uh -huh. but I definitely, there was a time where like when I was on, we were on Brainstorm Artists International, which was Adam again, uh, Gene Eugene. Wow. Um, really cool. He's a great artist. I don't know if you're familiar with their stuff either, but it was, they'd worked with Mike Rowe. He did this thing called Lost Dogs. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That was, I got and to, their band was just amazing. Yeah. I got to do a play at a festival with the Lost Dogs one time. So yeah, yeah the, they're, they're, they're very cool. cool. <laughs> really great all of those guys are like heavy hitting writers like just they all have their all full band with a full following and they all you know did something else and um i don't know what my point oh yeah so like over the rhine i uh, love them love what they're doing i don't know if you've seen like they've got this their uh their farm now yeah it's a I have studio a and a performance place yeah i have a friend who lives in cincinnati and he has been telling me about that it's they have a festival and a venue and outdoor things and yeah it seems really cool it seems like i i could totally see you at performing there like totally it, it seems like somewhere where you would fit yeah. in i think yeah well if they're listening they can book me yes if you're <laughs> listening over the rhine if you're listening to this podcast it's episode six you can get in on the ground floor um but uh so um where you where where did this all start? I mean, where did you start as a musician? Um, what was your what was the starting point for you? I mean, did you just come out of the womb singing and playing guitar or piano? Um, well, I I started as a teenager, and I I got a guitar the first day of school in eleventh grade. It was September first of my I remember because it's easy to remember September first. I was going back to school to eleventh grade. I was a junior in high school. And I bought a guitar. It was a 12 string. And, uh, and then I was just, I was way influenced by the, 
sort of uh, first wave Americana scene of the 80s. And so I really loved every, some of the big bands, you know, like John Mellencamp and the Hooters mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But then I got into the really indie stuff of the 80s, like the Silos, which you mentioned, or uh, the Rainmakers from Kansas City and uh, Lone Justice and Maria McKee. Oh, and, yeah. You know, and T-Bone Burnett, you know, and uh, -bone. all that kind of stuff. And yeah. And then I would work my way in reverse because I'd, I'd find some song or album and then I'd find out that that band had a whole career before. So I would go retroactively through their catalog and then I'd find out, oh, they worked with such and such a producer or had such and such a friend. And then I would just keep branching out. And then I discovered people like uh, Tony O'Kay, you know, and, oh, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff through Timo and Peter Case and the Plimsolls. Oh, yeah. And... You know, all that stuff. And so, and then, of course, the Midwestern stuff, like the Violent Femmes from Milwaukee and the Bodines, just down oh, yeah. the highway from where I was living. And so that 80s, you know, it was kind of Americana before Uncle Tupelo was a band. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you like Wilco? Do you like, or did you not like the well, switch I, I into Wilco? I like them, but they were more like, uh, you know, I was 10 years earlier than that. So my my formative years were I was listening to the same music Jeff Tweedy probably was. So you know he's not an right, influence. Right. I don't think of him as an influence as much as a peer. You know, like I think he and I were probably listening to the same records. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because I there's certain. It's interesting when you that time of your life where you lock on to music. Like I, I know high school, college. You know, there's just bands yep. that I that I found at that time and they definitely imprinted, Yeah, you know, like I, I grew up. So my, like my first couple bands that really blew me away were uh, U2's Joshua Tree album. Mm -hmm. Like I had on cassette and I just wore the tape out and became a lifelong fan. And I had friends who, you know, who had the unforgettable fire posters on their wall. They'd been to shows and I, I was young. And so I hadn't, you know, I had lived a semi-sheltered Christian life, where I hadn't gone outside of that circle and seen, you know, I'd never been to see a, you know, a band that wasn't a Christian band playing at a church. Yeah. And so for me, you know, like you too was like, whoa, that was a big moment. Um, the replacements in college, that was a huge thing for me to hear the replacements. I don't know why, but I just connected with, and one of their records that probably most of their fans hate, like Don't Tell a Soul, which yeah. is like way on. That's my favorite. I loved it. That's my favorite replacements album. That's my, <laughs> it is my, it's absolutely my favorite. And it's because I think I found it and it was like at one of this truck stop on this cassette, spinny cassette thing and you get it for $5.99. I'm like, wow, what a great deal. So, you know, bought a cassette and, um, well, so what are some of, you said some of those bands for you. Um, do, do those bands influence what you do right now? Oh, uh, or Totally. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, I think I so. I saw you talking about um, the last record you did. Oh, um, And look that up. it was very inspired by kind of a different style than you've been doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think. But that was more about production and sonically rather than the writing part, I guess. But yeah, my most recent album of new songs is called Look Up and it came out a couple of years ago. And that one, I really wanted... This was kind of a musical fantasy I had that I'd never done, which is I wanted to make a really, really slick, kind of overproduced, super electric arena rock album. <laughs> you know, because my whole life I've been in the basement playing acoustic guitar and making kind of folky rock music. And so 
I wanted to make an album with lots of keyboards and synthesizers and no acoustic instruments at all and have everything be like humongous with like 30 tracks and tons of just like absolutely massive. And so um, that's what I did. It was really a, a dream come true. And it turned out exactly the way I wanted it to sound. And also, I think I'd been listening to a lot of uh, female synthesizer pop music that was really inspiring. So I was, I really liked the uh, Taylor Swift Red album, and I liked Tegan and Sarah, uh, the oh, yeah. album they yeah. made about three years ago. And then I've, a lot of Nordic uh, synth music, like there's a Danish singer named Oland, who I love, and the Cardigans, mm. you know. Oh, and the Cardigans. Are they still releasing new material? I haven't heard from them in no, a long they're, time, they're, but they're, I, they, I love them in the time. They play, but I, they haven't made an album for probably 10 years. But it's that kind of, you know, um, that kind of Nordic, super melodic, really produced, really squashed and just, you Compression know, and yeah. everything, right. So and did you mix and master that whole thing, or no, did you? No, I, I used a producer. Which you know, in my early part of my career, I never had a producer. Um, and so, two albums of my life, I had a producer, and they were both, you know, um, probably the, my most successful ones. I mean, other than Sound Theology, which was totally me in my basement. But um, the the Public Library album, which I made in two thousand four, oh, yeah. that was one that that was the follow up to Sound Theology, and that was a really good. A part of my little uh, arc as well, because in a way that was the opposite of sound theology. Sound theology, you know, was was really epic and huge and really lo-fi, and public library was really short and concise and really hi-fi. And so that was where Walter from the Silos was the producer, and the, then the band the Silos was the band on the record. So that was another dream come true. Oh, that, how cool is yeah, that? So that was that was a total that was a dream come true totally for me as well. So that was in two thousand four. And then about 10 years later, I made the Look Up album. And, and I, the producer I used is a guy here in Minneapolis named Matt Patrick. And Matt's mixed and uh, played on and mastered lots of my records in uh, lots of my individual songs. But he's never been my producer before. But I love his production. And I knew that if anybody could help me do this really big electrified keyboard, you know, super production album, he could be the one. And I thought, you know, he did a beautiful job and we got to have some really killer people play on it. And uh, so that was really fun as well. Yeah, what's that? So because you're coming from, you know, like I do a lot of this myself. I play a lot of my songs by myself in my studio. Yep. Uh, you know, no one's around. I'm not playing off someone else. Um, and occasionally, I, I haven't done a recording like that in a long time. And I, I wonder if it, did it feel weird to not be playing all the instruments or do you, was that not like a control thing at all? Like where you feel like, Oh, the, you know, obviously, you know, this band, you looked up to this band most of your life. So you, you have a great respect for them coming in. Mm -hmm. But was that, was that weird creatively? No, Did you actually feel I needed to do it. It felt like the hugest relief in the world. Um, you know, at the early part of my career, I wanted my hands in everything. Like I wanted to produce and play as many of the things as possible. And as I've gotten older, I, it's been a gradual evolution away from that. And now I want to, I want to uh, delegate the work to as many other people as possible. And I find that I get like some of the most pleasure I get from the whole process is by identifying people who I really love and respect and who I, they're kind of my heroes. And then I ask them to do it. 
and then they come and play on it and then i just sit back and i just i write the songs and i sing the songs and do a few little things but primarily have these other people play and that's been just a blast and so that's really what the look up album was the ultimate vision of of that in fact my i made my producer uh, follow some rules when we made the record and one of the rules was that nobody was allowed to play or sing on the album if they'd ever worked with me before <laughs> so i couldn't call That's in cool. i couldn't call <laughs> in my old crew or my regular friends or the my regular collaborators it all it had to be all new people and then i also made a rule which was i'm not allowed to play any guitar on the album and there's no acoustic guitar allowed on the album and that forced me to just play the keyboards and i think that's been one of the interesting parts in my own perspective of my career is that in the last five years i sort of fallen in love with being a keyboard player again uh, because it's my first instrument it's the first one i learned how to play in my brain when i play guitar i think about piano i, I think oh, about keyboards so everything i do is from a keyboardist's brain and and then for 20 years, I just never played the keyboards because it's not very practical to go on tour and be a mm -hmm. singer-songwriter and have to need a keyboard. So I just do everything on the guitar. But uh, when I started playing Finnish folk music with that band Kaivama, I, you know, keyboards are a huge part of Nordic folk music, especially pianos and um, harmoniums and accordions. And so for almost half of our repertoire, I was playing keyboards and I just madly fell in love with the keyboard again after not doing it very much. And so the Look Up album is sort of me as sort of indulging my synth rock uh, fantasy. And it was, <laughs> That's awesome. it was just That's cool. incredibly I, fun. And I've always thought of you as a guitar player. So that is actually really interesting for me because I, I I, I knew, like, I saw, like, Kaivama when that came out, and I saw what you were doing. Uh-huh. And I, I, I just, I always knew you were, I knew you played a lot of instruments. Yeah. Like I, you know, um, but I didn't realize that was your primary instrument. That's, because I always would see you with a guitar, so. Yeah. My mind, you're just a guitarist. You're yeah. just a guitarist. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was just a guitarist for many years, just because of necessity. But, you know, it's funny, in, I, I lately I've been doing a lot of work, um, producing and playing on other people's albums and then going out as a sideman with other bands and that sort of thing. And whenever that happens, nobody ever asks me to play the guitar. You know, the only mm -hmm. thing people want and need is keyboards and sometimes mandolin, but mostly keyboards because there's so much fewer people that can do it. And so I get so many opportunities to play and to do some really cool things because I am a keyboard player. And so, for example, like in the last few years, I've gotten to tour the country with Walter from the silos, it kind of being Art Garfunkel and then a uh, and then the accordion player and piano player in the band. And that's been just incredibly fun. And whenever I get asked to play on a session, like come into the studio and play on somebody else's album, it's always to play accordion, harmonium, piano, Wurlitzer, yeah. Hammond, something like that. So it's funny that keyboards have really come back into my life in a major way and I, it's and it's so much fun and so i know i st i started this by asking how did you start <laughs> and um uh you so and this is another interesting thing i i was actually a little surprised that you didn't pick up you, you didn't pick up music till you were in what grade 11? 11th 11th grade yeah see now that that's actually really interesting to me and i the, the other person that amazed me was bill maloney 
Um, because I remember he didn't do anything until I think he, I don't know if he maybe played an instrument, but it was like kind of the same sort of thing. Like he started his, like doing his career and writing records, like when he was in his thirties. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. He, he like, really started late. Yeah. But that, so, and you, do you, did you have musical family members? Did you have like yeah. aunts and uncles or your parents? Yeah. All my, my grandparents on both sides of the family were very musical. And my, my dad's mother was a church organist. And so she was even, I guess, a professional musician. <laughs> and then my mom, my mom's dad was in many different bands and barbershop quartets and, you know, folky bands and country things and, uh, you know, old timey kinds of stuff. So, yeah, my grandparents were super musical. And then I have a lot of musical aunts and uncles and a lot of musical cousins. And, you know, my mom and dad are really good singers, although they'd never been professional musicians. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, so I, I music is just a huge part of our family for sure. That's I was I was wondering like if there because you seem to have a lot of music coming out of you, <laughs> and I and I and for starting at that, I mean I would consider that late. But I I didn't pick up a guitar till you know high school either. You know it was it was one of those things where I saw one. It was at church. That's where I got first got involved in music. Is my youth pastor had a guitar? Yep. And it was sitting there, and I'm like, hey, could I? Could I try that? And then he drew a few chords for me and I took it home. And then I, you know, eventually got some lessons and I started playing in the worship band. In fact, I played in the worship band and my first instrument was they handed me a harmonica. All right. And the full band was playing. So, of course, no one could hear me, but I thought because I was in junior high that I was totally like killing it yeah. with the harmonica. But it was like a rock band. So, like, they didn't, you know, they weren't miking me or anything, but I just thought it was the coolest thing to sit there with them. Yeah. And then, and then lip syncing at something for church. We lip synced some super heavy metal song. And my drummer actually taught me, like he was a real drummer. He said, here's how you play a beat. So I learned like how to play a douche, you know, sure. like the yeah. one, two, three, four. And, uh, you know, and from there it just, you know, I just kind of organically grew into playing more and more. Uh, when, did, when did you write your first song? Almost what was your first, because did you just write a song the moment you picked up a guitar kind of yeah, thing? Or? Yeah, I think um, I actually wrote a, a song with my cousin on the piano before I even played the guitar. So I think maybe part of my motivation for playing guitar was I wanted more, I wanted to write songs and I wanted to have a guitar as a resource for writing, you know, because I've been writing keyboard-based music already. And the earliest things I wrote was like, I, I wrote some collaborations with my cousin and yeah, that's uh, awesome and then i wrote some instrumental piano music that was sort of uh you know just kind of uh atmospheric riffy piano things and from there it went to guitar and then immediately once i got the guitar i was writing songs and actually some of those first songs that i wrote ended up on my first couple albums and that actually some of those songs were ones that people like and so i still play a few of the songs i wrote when i was a high school kid well what is the first release you had i'm looking at your Bandcamp page is it the 11 years and 28 days in the yellow room is yeah, that your? yeah the in 1992 it was a it was called 28 days in the yellow room and then 11 years later i reissued it on cd so that's why there's 11 years tacked onto the front but yeah in 1992 it was called 28 days in the yellow room it was a cassette four track um 10 song cassette. And so actually and that was this, in high school, that was in high school. No, that's when I was 21. You were 21. Okay. All right. Yep. And uh, so 
this year is the 25th anniversary of that album. So it's this marks the uh, 25th anniversary of my music career. <laughs> wow, that's that's really that's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, and you're still doing it. And, and it's been the only thing I've ever did ever since. Yeah. And you're married, and you have kids. Yeah, I got married um, the summer of '92 when I was 21, and then um, oh, you got married. I got married in July. And then in September, I started working on the 28 Days in the Yellow Room album, and then it came out in December. So it was the, the first thing I did as a young married person was uh, start to make that album. Yeah, and, and then it, and was your was Don Don is your wife, yep, right? Yeah. Okay. Was she uh, was she on board with your? I mean, obviously she married you, and you were a musician already, yep. so she knew that. Was was that difficult at all? Were there you know no. was she like? Hey, whatever you got to do, let's make it happen. Yeah, kind of Dawn, thing, or... Dawn has always been my biggest, um, my biggest supporter, and I think she she just knew me well enough when we met and when we, uh, you know, got married that this was my destiny. Like I was going to be a musician, period. And she she's always been the you know she's really believed in my vision and my the ideas that I'm trying to communicate, and I think she recognizes my my drive, like I'm super driven and I'm really, mm. really, I work really, really hard at being a musician. And, and, uh, so I think, you know, she's been fantastically supportive the whole time. Well, that, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> that, that also helps keep your relationship together. I'm sure like I've seen a lot of, of musicians where the, that the expectation wasn't the same and, yeah. and that really, yeah, that would be, tears, really, that would be hard. Oh, well, I think the other good thing too, Oh, now upstairs, someone's turning the water on. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> That's an awesome sound. <laughs> yeah, it's really loud. Hopefully they won't do that. Uh, they just got okay. home from the grocery store. Uh, <laughs> but when, uh, you know, Dawn, my wife, has also been super driven in her own career. And so I think that's what was good about when our, t our partnership is that I knew what I wanted to do and I was going to stop at nothing. And, and Dawn knew what she wanted to do. And... Uh, she was going to get her PhD and go to graduate school. And so she did that. And she's always been super uh, kind of high achieving in her own life. And so it worked out good because I can do my job anywhere. Like it doesn't matter where we live. And so I've, Dawn just gets to do her career and go wherever she wants to go. And I just follow along and do my thing. <laughs> where did you uh, where did you guys start out when you were uh newly married well where, where, where were you living we were midwesterners originally from upper michigan but when we got married we moved to the state of oregon on the pacific oh, wow. North, in the pacific northwest and uh and that's when she was going to go to graduate school and that's when i made my first album and it was pretty cool because i got to be i got to emerge as a indie songwriter in the Northwest at the exact same moment that the grunge boom sort of happened. Yeah, so I yeah. got to be there with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and all of that stuff. Now, of course, I never played with any of those bands, but it was just cool to be in that neighborhood. And like my, yeah. a lot of my earliest shows were in Seattle and in Portland and up and down the I-5 corridor. I would think that'd be a very electric feeling like it's sort of like the zeitgeist of that time was happening right there you know like that that was a moment yeah you know it's really cool it was fun but you know it also kind of forced me to i i, I had to i was a definite um out of place kind of artist then because my 
my lyrics and my personality is so squeaky clean and kind of pure. And I was in this grunge environment, which was so like drug infested and depressing. And, uh-huh. and I was like, Mr. <laughs> yeah. I was Mr. Sunshine, you know? So that did, I didn't have a lot of credibility in that regard. And then also the other scene that was really huge in when I lived there was kind of this Grateful Dead jam band kind of thing. And my music's the opposite of that. So I was writing short, uh, highly arranged, like melodic pop songs. And <laughs> everybody at the clubs and stuff, they wanted hippie jam. They either wanted like grunge and punk or they wanted, you know, fish. And, mm-hmm. and I was... So you felt like a fish out of water. <laughs> yeah, I was totally wrong for the scene. But I think it forced me to just be myself and to just kind of own it. And the good thing was it allowed me, the people who who wanted to hear stuff, the people who liked, you know, I used to get compared a lot to Freddie Johnston and Matthew Sweet and bands oh, like yeah. that. And so the, so the, the narrow people who loved that kind of music, I was right up their alley. So in those days, I, I used to get a lot of mileage from the success of people like Matthew Sweet and Freddie Johnston who were doing a lot. They were my... That that was my scene, you know, and it was like yeah. early early phase Americana, but more on the pop side. Did you so did you fall like so? Um, my I mean, I looked at I honestly I looked at your website. I looked at Over the Rhine, and I looked at Innocence Mission. Yeah, and when I was starting with when my wife my wife is a, a really great singer, but she does not like performing. I discovered later in our marriage, uh-huh. like she's super introverted yeah. and and she can be social with people but it is dr- super draining for her you know to be performing and, and she finally told me because she felt bad because she knows that i loved it yeah and and she's like you know i really don't like doing this uh-huh. i'm like ah but it was at that time that i was looking at all these bands yeah and trying to see what are they doing like what's their website look like where are they playing right. i was looking at like where where are these people touring? Yeah. And I never I never got you know, I didn't do a whole lot. I, I toured up, I went to Tom Fest, I played at Cornerstone with one of my bands. I'd I'd done a couple different things locally. And then um, you know, I got a job teach I'm a teacher now. I yeah. teach middle school and I'm also a professional musician. Um, but I kind of did a very backwards uh music career for myself and and I really didn't know what was going to happen. I just kept playing in local bands and I had some friends that I played with in a band that I still see these guys today and if we got together we could probably throw down and start playing within a few minutes yep. uh, songs that we performed. But um how did you how did you keep it up? How did you keep it up when because I know that being a a, a musician especially early in your career without a big hit national single uh you know I know that has to have been challenging. I'm sure it still is challenging um, to be a musician. Like, how did you, how did you get through that? I, Don was working. Yep. Were you working other jobs? Were you busking? I mean, what were you? No, I never, I never got a day job. I just kept on trucking. Yeah, yeah. like, how did you uh, afford to live? Uh, like, I know being a musician is hard. Like, I. I tried it for a very short time and it didn't, and we did not make much money. And I was in a band that was on a label. I thought, whoa, we got it We're on a label, but there was not a whole lot of money. Yeah. Well, so, it's in, you know, that's a good question. Like how, how did I keep it rolling for all those years? And as I look back now, I'm really, I mean, I'm really in a reflective mood in my life because once you hit 25 years of marriage and 25 years of a music career, it's 
it's such a long time that you can look back and you can see the the greater landscape of the whole thing in a new way. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think I lucked I lucked out or I lucked into it really in my in my ability to to do this full time for all these years because in the nineties it was really a great time to get into it because I started making records and I made a CD in. 1994 before anybody else made CDs. I was one of the first like independent artists to press a CD back when everybody else was only having cassette tapes. Yeah, how much did it, was that like crazy expensive? Cuz I I mean, I remember pressing CDs in uh, you know, like 99 and thinking, "Oh, wow, it's $1,000. It's like $1,500 for a 1,000 CDs or whatever yeah, it was at the a, time." I think it's It was about the same. I think it's this I think it was the same in 1994 as it is right now. That's I don't That's think it's funny. changed at all. Um, but, you know, I did my first album on cassette and I sold a ton of those. And my first three albums, they all, all they, they just financed the next one. So it was great because the, each album allowed a bigger budget for the following record. And uh, so that's just how they went. But because the 90s was such a good time, uh, the economy was roaring um, venues were booming. I was in the Northwest during the Seattle thing. And then it was really great when I moved back to the Midwest. I moved to Chicago in 1996 and I got really plugged into the music scene there. And there was a lot of great bands that were doing really, really well. And Becky Hemingway, I met there and she and I got to do a lot of great stuff at the end of the nineties. And her career was just rocking because she had been in a band called this train that was really big. And then she yeah. went solo and those fans came with her. And, and then I got to play with this band, Dolly Varden, which was kind of a big oh, yeah. mid- Midwestern Americana band. And those guys got to be my backup band for a lot of recordings and gigs. So I, I, that was just a blast to play with them. And then there was a really cool scene in Chicago in the 90s that I got to get in on. So that was cool. And uh, in those days, too, like I, I always think I really benefited from the Lilith Fair boom. Because you remember in the late 90s, they... They had yeah. a, there was this kind of female songwriter and just like any kind of songwriter with an acoustic guitar that got really really huge. That whole scene got really huge. And before the before September 11th when the economy was just roaring, um I remember in the Midwest every town had a coffee shop and I could I could cold call on the phone pretty much any coffee house and get a $200 guarantee plus a tip jar plus CD sales. And so I would just wow. I would just drive my car all the way around the Midwest from all the way from Cleveland to Fargo to Omaha to Des Moines to and back Chicago Minneapolis all the big cities in between and and I would just play every single coffee house that was having songwriters and I would get you know even bo- I remember Becky Hemingway and I would do the Borders bookstore circuit in the late 90s and we could get 200 bucks a night plus merch you know, it was, there was just money, <laughs> there was money just sitting around and, and I would sleep on people's couches and I would go to the motel six for 45 bucks and I didn't have kids at the time. And so my wife was busy teaching college. So she was grading papers all night and teaching night classes. So it was okay for me to be gone. So I just spent really like almost 10 years just driving around in my car playing those kinds of gigs. So that's really what I did during the 90s. And then it was really cool when I got to meet Becky and play with her because then that really knocked me up a level where all of a sudden I was playing way bigger places because her audience was way bigger than mine and she was doing 
she was just way cooler than I was. And so I got to ride her coattails for a lot of that. And then, um, and then when I made the Sound Theology album, then that just changed everything. Because then I, then I was getting invited to do festivals and getting, I could fly out to gigs and I was playing colleges oh, wow. and I was getting press. Like I got a ton of media coverage and radio. And so that was really great. Um, so I had a nice little, uh, I had a nice crescendo for my first 10 years, you know, and then September 11th happened and that screwed it up. Um, 9-11 plus the iTunes store kind of screwed it up in a lot of ways because the economy died and people stopped going out to shows because they were afraid of terrorists and stuff and flying mm -hmm. to gigs got really, really annoying because of security and fees and and then uh, iTunes came out and people stopped. The, the CD sales gradually started to slow down. So I was glad that like Sound Theology and Public Library came out in 2000 and 2004. And, and those were, I got to really benefit from people buying CDs. But right after Public Library came out, it faded away. So I caught the uh. last. So that was another reason I could keep going is I caught the last gasp of, of retail physical product. Thankfully, I was able to just sell lots and lots of CDs and that, that, you know, you could make a lot of money selling CDs if you toured all the time. Um, and then the other thing that kept me going after that, even though I kind of lost the, you know, the economy went south and I lost the physical media thing, but I had gotten like the Sound Theology album really inspired me to explore my church music roots. And so then in 2006, I made an album of liturgical music and that's called the Heartland Liturgy. And so, and then the, my idea for that was I wondered if I could compose this liturgical music that could also have sheet music in a songbook that people could play on their own without me having to be there and playing a concert. So like they could do my songs with their own band in their own context and I don't even have to show up. And that was when what I discovered there was there was a huge hunger in the world for new liturgical music that was catchy and playable and theologically sound and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, man, when I put out that record in 2006, I mean, that gave me a whole new career because all of a sudden I started getting invited to do workshops and go to seminaries and talk to divinity students. And uh, I, would, mm. I would get uh, invited to do a workshop for church musicians. And so I'd be, you know, spending the afternoon with choir directors and organists and you know so that was just incredibly fun and really really rewarding and uh, so that kept me going through the 2000s and then i had a big detour because i had two children in in that period and i was the stay-at-home dad and so um i i really kind of uh, after the liturgy album came out in 2006 i sort of disappeared for about four years and uh that's when my kids were babies and in preschool and I was at home changing diapers and all that stuff. And I still played shows sometimes and I would do a couple tours a year, but not very much. And I only made one album in that period and it's called Insomnia Accomplishments. Oh and, yeah, I and, love that title. Yeah, and that's that, a great title. That album is, uh, that's a really dark and difficult record, I think, for listeners because it's, it was because I had really bad insomnia because of the babies. And I was yeah. really messed up like physically because I was just up all night long for years and years. And, and uh, so I made this album that was sort of dark and depressed and really struggling with. And so it was, it was a necessary part, I think, of my creative life. But uh, 
it certainly didn't get me any more listeners, and it probably set me back my momentum a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, I wasn't sure after that. Like, I thought, how am I going to resume? And I knew I was just about to turn 40 as well. And I was like, how can I come back after being off the radar for four years and be a 40-year-old and, and, and come back to having a national music career? And what really saved me was Kaibama. Because I, out of the blue, I fell into this opportunity of playing Finnish folk music with this brilliant fiddler. And, um, and we thought, well, this will just be a fun little thing and we're going to play a gig. And so we played one gig and it just exploded. And this is right when Facebook was new. And so people started sharing our stuff on Facebook. We immediately got radio airplay in Finland and we immediately got press coverage. And we just thought, oh my gosh, this is this just exploded. And so that was like a whirlwind. I remember that. I remember that. And so all of, we went from, from just this fun little, um, like novelty project just for the heck of it. And it turned into my full-time job. And I did that for three years nonstop. And it was probably the busiest I'd ever been. And the, it was definitely the most, it was like a rocket, you know, and it was, we were so busy doing that music that I didn't even I didn't even do any solo material for three years because it took all of my energy to ride this wave, and so we played yeah. all over North America and constantly, you know. And I was I was playing, you know, basements and churches and coffee houses and clubs and stuff. And with Kaivama, we were playing theaters and recital halls, and you know, so it it was like a it was totally like a rocket just massive yeah, that, how cool yeah so <laughs> i remember i remember seeing that going whoa this is it's all i was just i was excited for you i just remember seeing it like being like everywhere yeah just it was i was like oh this is cool it was it was everywhere and it was and it was cool because it was totally different it had nothing to do with my previous career and it was a totally different audience from my previous career and it had no singing and so I went from being a person who was primarily interested in lyrics and communicating ideas with lyrics to a person who didn't ever sing and there was no lyrics at all. And so it was really fun to totally shift gears and, you know, get a chance to, to do that. And so uh, it really, it, it got me back out there into the music business at a time when I wasn't sure I'd be able to do it. And it allowed me to... It allowed me to, at age 40, appear as a new artist. And, it, you know, so I got, because no mm. one in that world had ever heard of me. So I got to emerge as a, I got to be new again at a, as a 40-year-old. That's so pretty that great. Was it, really, it's so cool. I mean, you're, you're, it's just really neat to see the kind of the phases your career has gone through and these just totally big, sort of like a Venn diagram here. And I'm wondering where they're all, you know, they're all co-sent, where are they all right. overlapping at? Yeah. It's it's really neat to see. And I'm sure that that's great because it's expanded your audience into very different places. Yeah, right. And so now I think about it that I really have three, if you're talking a Venn diagram, I really have three circles of of audience audiences in my music career. And one of the circles is kind of the rock and roll audience. And that's the people who know me as a songwriter and from working with the silos and from the public library and the lookup records and from pace to make music and that sort of thing. And then there's another circle of people who know me from church music and who know me as someone who writes liturgical music and is more of like a composer and someone who does workshops and someone who works with other musicians and does trainings and you know does arrangements for 
you know, vocal groups and does, you know, it's kind of more, it's a little bit more a compositional and not so artisty. And then there's the Nordic scene, which has really been wonderful. And so like, for example, this past year, I got to go to Finland and use the momentum I got from the Nordic folk music and just play my rock and roll songs over there. And so I did a two week tour in Finland and I, I played the Finnish version of South by Southwest. You know, they have like an annual music industry conference and I got to showcase there and get to play on the radio and got a ton of press. And so that was wonderful because I got to visit my cousins and visit the ancestral home of my, both my mom and dad's side of the family. So it's, it's really been great. And you know, the, the, the band Kaivama that lasted three years. And when that band retired, I hadn't really been a solo rock artist for 10 years because public library had been about nine years earlier. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can, for the first time in a decade, I get to be a rock singer again. And that's why I did the pub, the Look Up album. Because I thought, this is my chance to do this super produced, really loud, electric, arena rock record. And uh, so I, it felt like just a dream come true to kind of become a rock singer again after 10 years away from it. Was that your first... Um uh, like that was a Indiegogo or a Kickstarter. It was, Wasn't that a, yeah. Was I that did, the first one you had done like that? It was the first time I'd ever done crowdfunding. And you know, when, when Kickstarter came out and crowdfunding came out as a concept, I really hated it. And I thought this is so gross and I would never do it. And it's just disgusting. And I just <laughs> had this horrible reaction to it. But then, you know, a lot of the artists I really liked started doing campaigns. And then, uh, I was excited for their releases All right. So I was excited for these other bands to make albums. And so I would pledge my own money to be a supporter of their campaign. And I found that I really enjoyed being on the other side. I really liked supporting the artists that I love. Yeah. And I really liked getting the perks and getting the secret emails and getting the t-shirts and all the free stuff. And I thought, well, heck, if, it, if I love it so much as a fan, who am I to say that my listeners wouldn't appreciate that as well? Right. And so I had a real, so I had a 180, <laughs> I had a 180 because I put myself in the shoes of, of, uh, the, of the supporter. Cause I knew that I love to support the artists that I like. And I think, you know, in my life, I'm such a music fan. I'm a huge geek. Like I love music and I love rock bands and I love artists, even though over the years I've even gotten to play with some of those artists. I still am a huge fan and I think all when it's all said and done, I'll just be ultimately a music fan. And uh, so I thought I can do this crowdfunding thing. And it was at the time that um, pledge music was just getting rolling. And pledge music was like an alternative to Kickstarter. And the reason I chose pledge was a lot of the people that I really liked that I had helped to fund used pledge music. And I liked their right. interface and I liked their mission statement better than I liked Kickstarter. And so I used it and it worked. And it, now mine was not a, uh, I didn't blow the roof off and I didn't make an extra 30 grand or, you know, I, I basically just made my target goal. So, you know, you always hear about some of these bands who do their Kickstarter and then they get 50,000 extra dollars. Or, right. You know, right. That, that was definitely not my story. But I got just what I needed in order to have it work. And because my dream was to make this album that was very produced 
And also, the, one of my other rules was I couldn't record any of it at home in the basement. I had to do it all in the studio in a controlled environment with a professional engineer on really good equipment. And because of that, it was the most expensive record I ever made. And I could have never paid for it had I not done the, the crowdfunding. That's so cool, though. And you know what? I mean... Yeah, I, the same thing. Like, I, I remember just sort of checking it out and wanting to see how does this thing work? And um, I think it's great. If I love it. I do. I absolutely feel the same way. Like, I love supporting other artists. And and um, I know, like, what that feels like. And who knows, eventually that may be something that I go to again. I'm actually getting ready to release a new album, too. But I'm I'm thinking digital only at this point. Yeah. Um, I might make a few CDs and find like, I know a couple like these one-off kind of CD uh, creation places because most of my, like, you know, I've got CDs and boxes back here that I've had for <laughs> for a long time yeah. and, and, and they're not going anywhere. And I'm not performing live multiple times a year. I mean, I'm, I probably perform three or four times a year, yeah. maybe yeah. like uh, it, so I know for you, because you, you are actively touring every year. I've, it seems like every year I saw you going out. Yeah. Um, and and I'm going to, I'll promote this and we'll talk about this again at the end, but everyone should go look at Jonathan's website um, because there's, it was always, there was always so much cool content on your website. You're always had so many things going on, so many interesting, there's just a lot of interesting stuff that you're involved in. Yeah. You know? I try to, I, I, I've been, <laughs> I, I'm a, I really like doing website maintenance and I like social media. And so I try to keep my website up to date and I, and I do try to be involved in a lot of unusual and interesting things, uh, collaborations and studio work and uh, composition and touring and radio and multimedia. So I try to do all that stuff and I try well, to keep uh, it up on the website. Do you, where does your, where would you say your inspiration comes from? I mean, do you have a, something that really inspires you i i would i would say as a musician i'm guessing i know some of it is other musicians mm -hmm. but are there other things outside of maybe hearing a, a really great song that inspire you or inspire a song or you know you know the classic i, I read one interview and you talked about you write a lot of titles first yeah that's you get right inspired by a title yeah i love that i think i learned that from uh, paul westerberg i remember reading a interview with him in the early 90s where he said um one of my all-time favorite albums is his solo album called 14 songs yep and so uh, good he said around that time that he has a book just of titles and then and i thought to myself you know i had done that a little bit in the past but i had never kept a, a specific list of titles and then i started doing that and i think ever since then um i've been make i have i always have a list of titles going and i think all my most well-known songs and my most sort of beloved songs came from my list of titles. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really interesting. I like for, cause I work with a lot of songwriters too. And I, I'm involved in a weekly, like we write a song a week and post it online. And, um, I don't know if you ever heard of February album writing month. Um, oh yeah. I've heard of .org. Yeah. And I've also uh, heard of it. Isn't February novel writing month? Like right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's NaNoWriMo, okay. NaNoWriMo, which is the November uh, novel writing oh, month. Oh, okay. So and February the guy that was doing out. that, his name's Burr Settles. He, um, he was like, oh, I really wish there was something like that for musicians. And he's also an insane coder and he's like this 
smartest person, I think, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Uh-huh. But he he uh, coded up a website based on the NaNoWriMo that was for songwriters yeah. to write 14 songs in 28 days of February. Oh, yeah. That's where I really felt like... I, I wonder about this too, like because there was a point as a songwriter where I was I only wrote if I was really inspired or maybe we had a gig coming up, so I needed to write a couple songs. But um, I was always amazed... That I could, I would hear about these bands that literally went in the studio and came out with a record in two weeks, and I mean they wrote the whole thing in the studio, and that that blew my mind. I was yeah. like, how does that, how does that even happen? Yeah. And February album writing month for me opened up a lot of, like it unlocked a lot of inhibitions in like, I don't have to define what a song is. I can write whatever the heck I want to write. Yeah. I don't. And, did you have a moment like that, or have you always felt like this has to be this kind of song, or? When did the, tell me more about that? Explore yeah. that idea. Oh, I, I actually have a very concrete dis- example or a, a concrete story of how I've evolved. When I started out as a songwriter in the '90s, my first three albums, throughout the really everything I did in the '90s, I wrote strictly based on inspiration. So, like I was, I'd be sitting around and something would fall out of the sky and hit me, and I'd be inspired and I'd write that song. And then I was also, in those days, I was writing a lot of geography songs and a lot of songs that were just kind of uh, journalistic or observational. But they were often like, my, one of my goals actually was to try to, to see if I could write a song about, uh, you know, that nobody would really know what I was talking about. You know, <laughs> so that if you listen to it, you'd think, oh, you know, that's an interesting song, but I have no idea what he what he's talking about, you know. And... And so that's, I was just doing that for my own pleasure in those early albums. And then when I did the Sound Theology album, which the whole point of that was a concept album, and I had a concept that was very, very uh, defined that because it had to be one song for each week of the year, and it had to follow the seasons, and it had to follow the lectionary. So I, I had a real defined set of boundaries, and I found that, wow, that was really fun to have those specific goals to a boundaries to stay within Mm -hmm. and then when the album came out it was like 10 times more successful than anything i'd ever done before and i realized it's because in that album the songs actually had jobs to do and they were doing their job and and so here's what i went from being someone who was about form over function and i began to switch it around to being driven by function over form. And mm. so sound theology was where I realized that, oh my gosh, if songs have a function, they they resonate with the listener and they provide traction for the audience and for me and for my career. And, they, and it was pleasurable for me to be meeting the need of the listener. And I thought, wow, this is really rewarding that the song has, has work to do and it can do the work. And so um, I, then I got really, really into that with the liturgical music because that's the only job of liturgical music is to get a job done. It has no personal artistic expression necessarily, and it has no inspiration really. Its only job is it's, it's, it's like a toolbox. And, you know, this song has to do this job, period. That's its only goal. And so to me, that felt like the greatest thing in the world to write these super highly functional songs. And, and once again, the audience just went crazy because those jobs needed to be done and there wasn't anybody writing that kind of music. 
And so I came along with a whole record of it and I met the needs of a ton of listeners. And that was, once again, I felt so, it was so fulfilling and exciting to know like, wow, like I'm really bringing something to the table that matters in real life, you know? And then the same was true with the Nordic folk music because, you know, the music that, uh, you know, traditional music in the Nordic countries is function music. It's ceremonial music. It's marches for marching. It's funeral music for funerals. It's polkas for polkaing and waltzes for waltzing. <laughs> and everything you play has a job to do. And if it doesn't do the job, then it fails as a, as a piece of work. And so I got to learn about like mm. my own roots as a Finnish American musician and the music that my great grandparents would have heard in the 1800s was this functional ceremonial music that had work to do. And so I, that's been how I've evolved. And now I think as a, as a rock songwriter and a pop songwriter, my motivation now is to always keep function in mind even if I'm being artsy or even if I'm trying to express my, my own story, I want to, I want to be considerate of my listener and I want to be considerate of my audience. And, and I think, how can I meet their needs with this song? And how can I, how can I help them uh, connect with me? And how can, how can we be together in this moment instead of me just bloviating about my own feelings or something, you know, how, what, What's an example of that from your your last record? Like, what what's an example where you were trying to meet a particular? This is a function that it's it's a it's doing. Although it's a very artistic record, it, it it's something that you you know has your personal expression. What what's a song from there? Can you maybe give me an sure. example of one of those songs? Yeah, and, well, and here's how, what function you felt that was meeting. Yeah, well, here's a real obvious one, and lots of songwriters have done this. For hundreds of years but like there's a song on the look up album called the ballad of nicholas rungius and this is a uh, my 14th great uncle who lived in finland back in the 1600s and he had a really amazing life story and he's part of finnish history and no one's ever heard of him even in finland um and so i thought i need to write a song about him that's going to tell that story so that you know that his story can be known so i was I mm. was making, I was almost like a ethnomusicologist or a, or a more like a historian using music as my, as my media tool. So that was like one specific example. And of course that song got a lot of attention when I was on tour in Finland because they couldn't believe that some Finnish American guy was writing a song about an obscure Finnish person from 1600 and whatever. And uh, so the, you know, they were fascinated to think like, why would you write like what what's motivating you to write this song so that was a big that was one example and then like another example is like on the look up album becky hemingway and i co-wrote a song called second shelf down and that's probably the biggest hit or whatever if there can be a hit from that album and it's a song about family heirlooms and you know i know all my life i've never i've never heard about a song about family heirlooms and i've been thinking a lot as i get to be a middle-aged person about the value of the earlier generations and my parents and grandparents thinking a lot about the, you know, just uh, my family in the across time and space. And so to have this song about family heirlooms, now I play it at every concert and I always ask the audience, I say, before I play this song, I'd like five of you to share with the audience. You have a family heirloom and people always raise their hand and they'll say, you know, I have my, I have my, you know, grandpa's nightstand or I have my, 
you know, great grandma's high school graduation picture, you know, whatever it is. And, they, and we go around the room and then I play the song and everybody is just transfixed. And then after the show, everybody comes up to me to tell me more family heirlooms they have. And it, it allow, oh. and I always play it like the third or fourth song, because I know if I play that song at the beginning of the show, we can all be together right away. Like we can have a moment early on in, in our time together so that in the minute I do that song, then everybody's on board for the rest of the show. Then I can do anything because we can share that kind of deep moment early. And then, then our trust is established early on and it can last the rest of the concert. That is really cool. Like I, I so like I, I've played in bands and I know one of the things that I, we would always do to connect with the audience is we play a cover song. We play something that was familiar that would draw people in. Yeah. That would get that, you know, but I, I, I love that con. I mean that like, I actually just really, my brain just went like this. <laughs> I mean, I understand the concept of connecting and I have not performed any amount of shows. I like, you have like 4,000 million. How many shows have you performed? Do you know the number? Uh, you have like a tracker for that? No, but I, at, at my busiest, I used to do 150 a year. I used to do 150 dates a year in the early 2000s, like during the Sound Theology Public Library era. And now I'm doing about 75 a year. And it's so you got a couple thousand I'll shows. I'll apply that by 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've done like, you know, I've done a couple hundred. Uh -huh. And um, so there's some, but, but that, I mean, seriously, if you're an artist out there, people <laughs> listen to this because I, that to me, that's gold right there. I'm seriously, I want to play a show right now just so I can think of a way to like intentionally, I think the intentionality of that yeah. is great. Yeah, you know, and I, I think in the songwriting and in the performance. Yeah, well, in my goal, I just been doing it so long that I know what satisfies me as a performer, and I know what feels fulfilling as an artist. And for me, it's to have those um, special moments with the listeners, and uh, and I want to I want them to trust me as early as possible during the concert, because if they can trust me early on then they'll let me get away with a lot of things throughout the thing. And then by the time I, my concerts are usually an hour and 15, hour and a half. And so if I can welcome them into the moment like that early, then we can be together the whole time. And that's what's, that's what's fulfilling to me about that. And, uh, but you know, I've had a lot of criticism about my focus on function over form from people in mm. the music business and other artists I've known. And I've had people call me cold and calculating and say that my art, uh, because it's, because it's, it's so, um, it's so intellectually motivated, um, that it's not real and it's not emotionally driven mm. enough. And that I'm too, I'm too, uh, much, I'm too surgical about the whole thing, but all I can do is be who I am. You know, right, and and, and so, that's good advice for any artist too. I would think is to just do do what you do that you love that feels right for you to do musically right. or artistically. Right, and uh, and so and I feel that I mean I've been able to do this for so long, and I've I'm thankful for the respect I've got from the from critics and from other artists, and so I think well you know everybody is who they are and you just have to 
figure out what what drives you to what's your motivating factor you know and you know how i've come to think of it is um i like to think of myself more as a craftsperson than a than a inspiration driven artist so like i think it's better to say like i'm like a carpenter that can build chairs and my job is to build a chair that yes it's a beautiful chair it's inventive it's its design is really cool but ultimately the point is that it works like a chair is supposed to work. Like it holds you up right. and someone it, could sit in it. Someone <laughs> could sit there and it can hold you up. And if, and so if I'm, mm. if I make something, if I try to make a chair and it doesn't hold the person up, it, to me, I'm not interested in how beautiful it is or how inspired I was when I made it. I wanted to, I want that. I want it to function. I love that. I love that. I, I think that's great. I think that's a great, that is a great, uh, What's it called? I guess it's a great defense of your <laughs> function over form. I mean, not that you needed to defend it, but I understand you saying that you had people that were kind of really down on your approach to songwriting. Yeah. And um, that's so cool. Uh, that it is really is very inspiring to me, too. And I like uh, so I write a lot of ridiculous music like I, I, I actually this podcast kind of came out of a. I did it as a Mr. G, which is my my alter my musical alter ego where I write really dumb songs about video games and ninjas and bacon and just <laughs> like it, it really actually came out of doing February album writing month. Um and uh I felt very free at that point. And this was like in 2008 and I've been playing music since, you know, 90 91 92. Yeah. Um, I've been playing and, you know, and started performing a few years later when I was in college, but, um, it's, it's neat to hear that and like how you can approach, you know, you can approach your craft in so many different ways and impact people. I mean, I think ultimately everyone wants to connect with other people. Yeah. And, and that seemed like what you were saying, you know, like just having that connection with your audience. Cause it's otherwise I think it'd be very unfulfilling. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know. Um, art without connection, I think, is generally unfulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what was your first gig? What oh, was your first gig? Oh, my first gig was awesome. My first gig was um, when I was a junior in high school. I had been writing songs and playing with my cousin, Bruce. And this is the cousin that I, where I wrote the first song where I was playing the piano. And, and then I learned the guitar. And so this was my junior year. I got the guitar in junior year. And at the end of our junior, my junior year, my, my cousin is already in college. He's two years older. Uh, there was a state school near us, Michigan Technological University, in near my hometown. And they were having a folk festival. We got booked to play at this folk festival at Michigan Tech University. And we and this got is asked, when you were how old? Uh, 16. No, I was, 16. Oh, was, wow. Yes, I was 16. And my cousin was 18. And... And so we got to open for the headliner, who was Greg Brown. Do you know who Greg Brown is? Uh, he, I don't know. Who he's Greg a Brown big is. Iowa. Um, he's a Midwestern folk legend. He's he's kind of in there with like John Prine. Oh wow! Okay, and I know who John Prine is. Those kind <laughs> of and Prairie Home Companion. Oh, wow. and that kind of stuff. And so Greg Brown, in here in the Midwest, is he's kind of like uh, he's he's a folk legend. And he was on uh, Red House Records, which is a big Midwestern folk label. And so anyway, he was the headliner. We get to open for him. And 
that was wow. that was my first and we played it was at a hockey arena on a big stage with probably i don't know 100 people i mean it was a there was a lot of other there were other art booths and food booths and stuff but we were on the in the performance stage but still it was like a big crowd on a big huge stage in a hockey arena so that was the first gig gig that i had and then the first paying gig i ever had was when i was a senior in high school and it was with me and my cousin and we got asked to play the um the like northern michigan lutheran high school youth gathering over christmas vacation in green bay wisconsin and i remember just being blown away that like i think i got paid 80 dollars and was given a hotel room at a hotel in green bay and my oh cousin my and i loaded our guitars <laughs> in the car and we drove like four hours in the snow to green bay and we played for 80 high school kids and i was a high school kid so i was playing for people my age and i was the guy on the stage and we made eight i made 80 bucks and i thought this is what i want to do <laughs> i want to make money singing songs that's that's what i want to do yeah after the after the stuff those two gigs right there boy you're like this is every show is going to be a stadium with a lot of people yeah. or it's going to pay and then you learn that they don't all do that right i mean you must have had a couple of you have, I'm sure, disappointing gigs. Like, oh. what is the worst gigs? Oh, give, I have, me, give me an example of one of your worst ever gigs, like Spinal Tappy or oh, yeah. uh, otherwise. Okay, this is a good one. This I actually wrote about this one. There's a really good website called Popdose. Have you ever seen that website? Uh, Yeah. Popdose.com. They do a lot of cool like uh, music reviews. But everybody who's listening to this podcast, you should go to popdose.com and then Google Runman or Jonathan Runman. You'll see I wrote an article. They had a they had a series called My Worst Gig where they asked a bunch of artists to share their worst gig. And so I wrote a I wrote a feature article on my worst gig. So I was on tour with Becky Hemingway. It was in about 2001, maybe. We were playing at a club in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky called the Rudyard Kipling. And it was a club that had like a music room with a stage and then a connected room with the bar. And so if you were at the bar, you would have to like pay your cover charge at the door to walk into the music room. And so I was the opening act for Becky Hemingway and then I was in her band. And so I was on stage first and there was almost nobody there. Becky was there her, and her husband was there and maybe one other person was in the music room. And then there were people at the bar. And so I was playing my set and a drunk guy walked in from the bar through the door and he came up on stage behind me while i was playing he got up on the stage and behind me was an upright piano that was pushed up against the wall and as i was singing he started banging on the piano really loud oh, no. and he wasn't playing the piano he was just hitting it like smashing the keys and i had to i was thinking to myself like what do i do in this moment do i do i keep playing and pretend like nothing's happening or do i stop playing and like ask him to leave and while i was trying to decide what to do the piano bench broke and he fell backwards onto the floor and landed next to my feet face up on the ground and there was this huge crashing noise obviously because he was a big guy and the bench broke and the wood pieces went flying and and then the bouncer from the bar room heard it and came in and dragged him off the stage and threw him out of the bar and i and the whole time i never stopped playing i because all of that happened within like i don't know 25 seconds or something 
And, oh my god! And so it was all over, and I was on like the third chorus or whatever. So I just finished the song and finished my set. <laughs> <laughs> well done. The show must go on. That's right. So I just kept on trucking. I'm a professional. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing. Okay, so what was your what was one of your best shows? I mean, what was one of the just the greatest experiences you've had as a musician? Like transcendent or just so epic you know everyone with you can you remember one that was particularly oh yeah well late i've had a lot in the last few years it's when i came back from my uh, little hiatus of having babies i've had a lot of really incredibly huge things like just i'll give you two really different ones um last fall when i was on tour in finland i played a concert in a church and it was a church in my paternal grandparents' uh, hometown. Well, it's like my dad's mother's parents' hometown. And so I got to set up my guitar and my microphone like in the center aisle at the front of the church at, at the exact same place where my great-grandparents were married in the year 1895. Wow. And I had never been to this town before. And I had only connected to these people through Facebook. And so I had been in touch with a, a woman who is my second cousin who booked the show. And she invited probably, I don't know, there was a couple hundred people there. And I bet 75 of them were relatives of mine who I had never met. And they, and they, where they had never met an American relative. And then afterwards we had a reception across the street in the historic school where my great grandparents had been to school as little kids. And we all had coffee and snacks and I had my CD table and, and I got to just meet dozens and dozens of relatives and the, the sort of profundity of being in that building. And, oh, and then when I was there, I, I thought I should play some traditional Finnish folk music. So I played a wedding March from a couple hundred years ago in the exact place where my great-grandparents were married. Uh. So that was really incredible. But uh, now here's something that's totally the opposite. Um, like uh, about a year and a half ago or a couple years ago, I was touring with Walter from the Silos, who is one of my favorite songwriters and who I listened to when I was a high school kid. And uh, so it's just been really fun to become friends with him and to make the public library with record with him and then now to go on tour with him. And uh, so Walter got a gig at the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco. And, Ooh, cool and uh, the, it's in Golden Gate Park. And there's multiple stages and there's tens of thousands of people there. And, and so then Walter put together his kind of uh, all-star band. And so playing guitar with us was this guy um, who is the guitar player for Robert Earl Keane. And, and he plays with a lot of the Austin... Uh, people rich brotherton is his name and i have a ton of records that he's on so to stand on stage and harmonize with rich brotherton and i'd seen rich at, from the audience five different times because i'd seen him with kelly willis and i'd seen him with robert earl Keane a couple times and so to be on stage with him and walter at this huge festival in golden gate park and then we stayed there the whole time and so i was backstage i had the pass and so i got to sit backstage and talk to t-bone burnett and and Buddy Miller and watch like St uh, watch Steve Earle and Emmylou Harris from the side of the stage, like right by the monitor mix guy. And just like 
And I got to see like all my musical heroes at the same festival and think like I was playing that festival. It was That's really cool. So it was just like a uh, total, total dream come true. And I was just like, oh, there's Rodney Crowell. And there's, uh, you know, there's the Punch Brothers. And, you know, it just goes on and on. And there's Nick Lowe. You know, it's just like ridiculous. And I thought were you to, were you pinching yourself? And was it was it weird? Were you was there any starstruck? Yeah. Or did you feel okay being there? Well, or did was, you feel a little like I was definitely I was starstruck, but it was just so cool and everybody was so nice. And I and I saw Timo Burnett just standing there by himself, talking to no one, waiting for a golf cart to pick him up. And so I thought I have to go. I can't not say hi to Timo Burnett. So I went up and talked to him, and he was the nicest, most normal guy imaginable oh like here's another like it's been really great to play with walter because walter knows all these people and so a couple years ago i got to do a south by southwest with him and on the bill that i got to play on was uh this super group that included um mike mills and peter buck from rem and and it was at this nice. venue called the hole in the wall in austin and other people on the bill were like sid straw who made a record i loved in the on virgin records in the 80s and uh, tom freund who used to be in the silos and has played with you know but to think that i was playing on this bill in this little club in austin with the guys from rem and i had their poster on my wall when i was a kid and now we were just playing this show you know i mean it really was a trip so there's been stuff like that or like um uh in 2013 i got invited to play uh, on npr on the mountain stage show and the headlining band was the bodines which is one of my favorite bands and the drummer playing with the bodines right now is kenny aronoff who was the drummer for mellencamp and he's my all-time favorite drummer and so I got to sit backstage, I get to open for them and then sit backstage and watch Kenny play. And then at the end, the host of the show said, everybody come up on stage and we're going to sing this folk song called Stagger Lee and everybody's going to take a verse. And so I got to sing like the third verse and Kenny from the Bodines was playing the drums. And so, and I was alive on national public radio. And I thought like, I can't believe I'm singing a song on public national public radio with Kenny Arnoff on the drums right now. Standing next oh, to the Kurt cool. from the Bodines, you know. So there's been a few things like that that I'll just never forget that have just been have been amazing. Oh, here's another great one. Like when I made the Look Up album, I really wanted some um, of my favorite people to be on it. And one time when I was in California on tour, I was in Sacramento, and I thought just randomly I would ask uh, on Facebook this musician I like named Brent Bourgeois if he wanted to go out for breakfast. And Brent had a had a major label band in the 80s and had a big hit. And so he was home and he was like, sure, I, I don't know you at all, but I'll meet you for breakfast. So <laughs> I went out for breakfast with him and he was totally cool. And then I asked him to, uh, I asked him if I could send him some audio if he'd sing on the Look Up album. And he said, no problem. So I sent him the audio and he sang this incredible harmony part. And when I got it back and my producer put it into the mix. It was just so beautiful. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, and he's sung with Christine McVie and he's sung with Todd Rundgren and a, a lot of people who I just love and I love his solo projects. And so I've really, I've had a chance to interact with a lot of my own favorite people. That's so cool. So uh, sometimes I can't even believe it because I'm such a huge fan. Like, and I just love their music. You know, I've always heard too that people say never meet your idols because they might disappoint you. 
Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm so thankful. Like I've met so many of my all-time favorite musicians and they're just, they've all been incredibly warm and friendly and normal and great. That's so cool. That's great to hear. I've, I've, I've really, honestly, I've experienced the same thing. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've met many people that I, they looked up to and, and discovered they're just really down to earth and love what they do, yeah. you know? Yep. And I'm sure there's, there's always there's always some, you know, some people that, that aren't, but I think for the most part, you know, people are just kind of cool. Yeah. It's, I think it's great how you've used uh, your music and, and what you do in music to kind of reach out and meet people that, that you want to meet, like how that's allowed you to connect. I, that, honestly, my podcast, I started my podcast because I wanted to meet the guy that composed the music for Gravity Falls and because uh, my kids and I were watching it. Disney show. It's the great music. It's got a great theme. I love the, the intro theme song. It's just amazing. And I had to look it up and I looked it up and I said, oh, this guy, Brad Bree. I sent him an email. He responded. I said, I've got a podcast. I literally started the podcast so I could interview him. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I love talking about creativity with people. I love learning yeah. and, um, you know, like books, like, I don't know if you've ever read songwriters on songwriting. Oh, I love that Paul book. Zolo. Totally. I love that book. I stood behind that guy in McDonald's. <laughs> it was awesome. Wow. I didn't talk to him. I was, I was a little, actually, I was a little intimidated to talk to him, but, um, uh, and I, but I love that. I love hearing about the craft and the, it's so much fun to hear the passion that people have, you know, for their projects. Um, and you know, your passion for what you do is obvious. And, um, I, I mean, I really, Appreciate getting to talk about it with you. Yeah, this is so um, fun. I love podcasts. I love podcasts as a medium. I just think it's a great way to get ideas across. And I love listening to podcasts. And I always love being a guest. And and it's just fun to, yeah, I mean, talking about creativity, that's like, that's the most fun thing ever. And uh, so uh, as we're, as we're, you know, wrapping up, um, I want to ask you uh, one or two more questions. Is there a, um, what, I mean, what's coming up next? What is next on your docket? What are you working on? Are you, have you started, is there a new record? Are you doing uh, I know you kind of, every few years you sort of do a re-release, you remix some stuff and yeah, that's great. I mean, that's great. You I know, my, my motivation for that is, um, I have like a big back catalog of records, but I don't want to keep manufacturing a thousand copies of all these old records and then have a basement mm -hmm. full of CDs. And so right. what I always do instead of manufacturing the old ones is I'll just make a new compilation of the most essential songs from the previous albums. And then I'll make a thousand copies of that. And that way I always have new product. And that way I don't have a basement full of CDs that I can't sell. So that's, that's smart. That's been, and that's been fun too. Cause it allows me to dig out unreleased stuff and have remixes and, live versions like so like my new compilation is called reservoir it just came out this summer and it has like a unreleased live version of one song and it has a remix of a sound theology song that no one's heard for 17 years and so it's you know it gives me a chance to oh and then it has one song that has pre has never been released in any form before so it's i love the kind of reissues and compilation models and if people really want the original records they can go on amazon and get them or they can get them from me you know so if there's hardcore people who must have the first pressing, you know, I I can dig one. I think up. that's great. Yeah, I think the fans probably. I'm sure the fans totally love that. You know that there's so many. 
they get to hear the genesis of some of these songs and like the alt versions. And, yeah. you know, it's like when the Beatles released the um, anthology. Totally. I know that that was super exciting just to see some of that process. I know some people don't like that, but I think I think a lot of people, especially your, I think fans. Yeah. Really, really do like it. So what what did you say? What what is the next oh, thing coming yeah. out? Well, are I'm, you, I'm are trying... you in process now with a new album? Are you writing a bunch of new songs? Yeah, or... I'm I I'm kind of at a cool place because my future is kind of wide open right now, and I could go a few different directions. Um, currently, I had spent the past year just kind of making sure I could get the Reservoir compilation album out, and so that's what I worked on. And then I promoted it over the summer, and I did a CD release show and that kind of stuff. But now that that's done and the album's out and it's out, everything's rolling, I've got to decide what to do next. And so one of the things I'd love to do is to make a, a solo album of Finnish folk music because the response to the Kaivama project was so great. Um, and I really got me passionate about that uh, repertoire. Um, but now uh, there's, I, I need to have a version of it that's me solo. Because there are ways I can play it solo without a fiddler or without a bigger ensemble, but I have to figure out how to do it. And so uh, I, well, that's a challenge I think I would like is to make an album of uh, and have it all be totally acoustic uh, where I'm playing all the instruments and overdubbing everything and have it being super folky and super traditional sounding. So that's one idea. And then my other bucket list thing, and this is really, really impractical and probably... My, I don't know if it's worth doing, but I really want to make uh, an old school, like 80s vinyl indie rock record, sort of the opposite of Look Up. So I want to, <laughs> and I'd want to do it with no computers because Look Up was like super high tech and super pro tools. And so I'd love to do one. Uh, I have a friend who's got a reel to reel, you know, a tape machine. And I would love to just record like lo fi rock band electric guitar, bass and drums, eight or nine, maybe 10 songs, and have it be about 30 minutes long, 35 minutes, where you could make a LP with just like a real LP, and then put it out only on vinyl. Because I have one of my bucket list things is to make a vinyl record, and I've been listening to vinyl in my private life and really enjoying it. I, got a, I bought myself a turntable for Christmas a couple of years ago, and a good stereo, so I can my vinyl stuff sounds really great here at home and it's just fun, but I don't want to involve any computers if I'm going to do it. And so I would love to just record straight mm. to tape and then mix the tape and then go to Jack White or Gillian Welch or some of those people who have their own cutter machines and bring them the mix down analog two inch tape or whatever you, I don't know what you mix down to, but you know, bring the mix down tape to Nashville or Detroit or wherever they work and say, you know, cut the cut the vinyl from this, so there's never any computers on it at all. That's pretty awesome. So that's <laughs> and have it be really trashy and simple and fast. And uh, so I think, so I think one of those two things are the most exciting to me. But as far as like the 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 analog record, I'd have to write more songs because I only have a few songs that would work in that sort of genre. But I think um, now that my kids are going back to school on Tuesday, I'll have the house to myself. And I, I can't write songs with anybody else in the house. Even if they're quiet or if I'm in the basement, it still doesn't work. I have to have an empty house to write songs. So if the kids go back to school next week, uh, maybe I can write a bunch of new stuff. 
So I can't I can't wait to hear that. I'm I'm kind of excited about the uh, the the vinyl only vinyl record there. I I'm gonna have to get a record player. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get a record player just for that, or I'll, I'll have to wait till someone someone pirates and upload it uploads it to Napster. Right? Is that is that a thing? Even is Napster even a thing anymore? I don't Spotify know. Spotify killed Napster. I think so. And we didn't even have that. Kind of, I, we won't do that tonight. Okay. We may have to do that another time. Well, one of these days- that is actually what started. Uh, me wanting to have a conversation with you as we st- just on Facebook. That's right. We talked about Spotify. Yeah, there was a little Spotify thing, and and uh, we'll have to we'll have to do that some other time because I know that's a whole that's a whole nother uh, that's a whole nother dive down the rabbit hole for yeah. sure. But and um, you know what we should do too is next time I come to California, we should plan ahead so that I can. So we can have lunch, or maybe that we could play oh, a show dude, together. You got, or we have to have lunch, Wouldn't and then you got to come to the studio. Yeah. And and we have to write something. And I would love to. That by the way, I am offering. Uh, I play a good trashy, uh, white stripey kind of drum. Yeah. And I'm a guitar play. I play guitar. I like to rock. Yeah. Um, we should we should do a show. Sing. For sure. I will do whatever. I would love to collaborate on something with you. Yeah, I have a gig booked in San Francisco in March, and I might make it last a week and uh, rent a car and come down to L.A. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Swing down to L.A. But I'll keep you informed. Cool. All right, I have a couch in the studio, so good to know. So yeah, I'll, that'd be a, fun. You'd have a place to lay your head. Great. Um, so, bonus question: I hear that you are a horror filmmaker. Yes. Is this true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm. My family made an independent film this year for fun, uh, and we made it because my kids are getting to be pretty old. I mean, they're they're not old, but they're thirteen and ten. So they're mature enough that they can do some kind of advanced things and they're getting to be pretty good musicians and they're pretty comfortable on stage because I have them play with me sometimes. Oh, that's cool. So they, they're pretty, they know kind of the showbiz vibe. And uh, also because I got a new computer that has like really tricked out iMovie, like it's a new Mac, so it's got really good iMovie. And I just got the new Pro Tools, which has all the new audio, you know, you synthesizers and software tools are great so i i feel like i have really good gear like the best gear i've ever had because for years i had the most lo-fi crappy gear and now i have good stuff and uh and we also have a little handheld camera that i bought for 200 bucks that's like a digital like a digital camera where you can dump the dump the video into imovie and i'm amazed between that little camera and my iphone like how good the quality of the film is and so I had this idea and I was thinking like, boy, I bet we could make a movie. Like our family could make a movie. And my wife and I used to, when we lived in the West Coast, we used to be in movies. We were extras and actors and stuff in actual oh. uh, TV shows. And I had one actual real role on a CBS show for one episode. And so I got to see how they, how they really make real movies and TV shows. And uh, I thought, I, we can do this with this gear that we have. And uh, my kids had made up a, a monster story. When my, when my daughter was in preschool, she made up a, a story of a monster who's called Bar Stempy. And Bar Stempy looked a certain way. She drew pictures of him, and he was really scary. And then the kids made up a whole mythology about Bar Stempy, and they would tell stories about this terrifying monster. And, uh, and I kept telling these, our, my kids, I was like, man, we have to make a Bar Stempy movie. Where where you guys are the heroes and I'll be the monster, and uh, 
I said, but if we're going to do it, we can't just like goof around. We have to make a real movie. We have to do a storyboard. We have to write a script. <laughs> we have to shoot, uh, plan the stuff ahead. We have to shoot it really well in beautiful lighting. We have to get good sets and good costumes. We have to edit it professionally. And then we have to write the score and compose the background music. And it's got to, I said, I'm not going to do it if we, it's got to be totally real. And they where were, can you, where, by the way, where, because people I know are going to want to see this and I totally wanted to see it and I don't know why I haven't watched it it's yet. It's on but. YouTube and it's on my Facebook musician page and it's, uh, those are the two Ew. best places to watch it. How do you spell it? Um, is it, if I search for that phrase, yeah. Barstempi, oh, yeah. is that the title? And there's only, it's only one Barstempi in the world. So if it, <laughs> this movie is called Beware Barstempi and it's spelled with two I's, B-A-R-S-T-E-M-P-I-I. Ah, it's the double I. Yeah. There it is. It's the only one. That's yeah. ju- that's also, ju- by the way, if you're naming a band, people, uh, try to pick a name that doesn't, art, like, don't call yourself Car Cleaner because you're going to have a really <laughs> hard time right. getting anyone to find you. Bar Stempy. Okay, so what is the basic premise of Bar Stempy without ruining the uh, the whole plot here? Okay, well, Bar Stempy was just um, a monster that, was scary to my daughter and when she was in preschool and so part of our job as the makers of the film was we had to come up with a plot that would be worthy of bar Stimpy. like why why did he emerge why is he attacking us like what does he want and so the so then the kids came up with the plot of where is where, where is he coming from what is he trying to accomplish how are these kids involved and then how how do they cope with the monster like how do they how do they defeat the monster basically? And so we, <laughs> then they came up with the story and of course their idea was like, if we did their idea, the movie would be 45 minutes long. And I was uh-huh. like, there's no way this is a short film. We, it's gotta be like less than 10 minutes. So we can't do everything. So we had to pare it down to a reasonable plot that we could do in a few minutes. So there's three scenes. There's the opening scene and then there's kind of a middle exposition scene. And then there's the final climactic scene. And uh, we, the weather here in Minnesota was quite warm in February, March, and all the snow melted. So we shot it outdoors in the woods uh, by our house in, uh, in this really scary, the woods, the woods looked really scary. So we shot it on location and, uh, and then came home and edited it together. And then we wrote the, and my kids are learning to play the violin. So I made them write the music. <laughs> so they, they composed the score and I recorded it on Pro Tools. And then we... F- oh, then we flew in the score underneath the video and uh, put the score in the movie. And, uh, and then we released it and I, we had a big campaign to roll it out. So for about a couple of weeks before we had a trailer and a bunch of promotional posters and then we rolled it out and it came out on, it came out on April 27th, I think, or April 28th. And I think it, in the first month it got like 4,000 views on Facebook. Oh, that's awesome. So I think maybe this fall, I might even see if we can get it in a short film festival here in Minneapolis. <laughs> That's so cool. Have you ever seen American movie? Yeah, you- years ago <laughs> I did. And, you know, I think that was definitely, you're inspired by, you know, independent horror movies and like the Blair Witch Project, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a horror movie fan, but it's 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 the easiest kind of indie film to make because... You know, it's easy to make a monster that does scary things. So yeah, we, and just, it's just make fun. everything gets dark. And well, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, so I had to ask, I had to ask about that uh, because 
that was just on my that was on my top ten things to make sure to ask you about. Yeah, so. definitely. All right. Well, please dude, watch. thank you so much. Um, what links should they find you on on social media? Oh yeah, that's great. Well, I'm I want I like to have uh, people like me on Facebook and like the musician page because it's amazing how many people pay attention, like venues and stuff, pay attention how many likes you have. So like Jonathan Runman, the musician, for sure. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My favorite platform is Instagram. I just love Instagram. It's the most fun. Um, and I'm trying to get some more followers there. But I like Facebook's my least favorite, but I have to do it because of necessity. And I get, I think 90% of my gigs come from Facebook. So I have, wow. so I have to stay on Facebook. But I love Instagram and I do like Twitter a lot as well. So please follow me online and go to jonathanrunman.com and sign up on my email list. And you know, I would love, anybody who's listening to this podcast, I would love to come to your town. I'd love to play at uh, a house concert or at an art gallery or at a university or in your church basement or in your, uh, you know, at your folk festival, any of that stuff. I would love to play. Although I'd, I'm trying not to play any more bar gigs because I'm kind of done with <laughs> bar gigs. But you're done with having drunken yeah. uh, bar patrons here's, break here's piano my goal. benches behind you. Here's my goal. I want the audience has to be seated in chairs and they have to be only paying attention to me. And there can't be food. <laughs> no food and no food. No and drink. no standing. And uh, so if if they can be seated and if they can pay only attention to me, then I would love to come and play. Is is Austin City Limits like that? Yeah. Festival? Is that Oh, I don't know what the TV show is. I don't know if the festival is. I always loved the 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 televised ones. I always thought that looked so cool. It looked like it was out of a different world, but like I was watching the Shins play, but like it's like this nice like kind of opera house yeah. and everyone's sitting and I'll never go back well, to the club gig ever again. Okay, well Austin City Limits, so you heard you heard it here first. Uh, Jonathan <laughs> Runman is available. He will take your calls uh, to do a gig there. That's right. And also, right. if you're, I don't know when this is posted, but look on my website because I'm playing all over North America in the next uh, 17 and 18. So come and say hello. Everyone go to jonathanrunman.com because I know you can find all of his social media links there. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, run, R-U-N-D, and then man. Yeah. Rundman.com. And uh, Jonathan, thank you so much. Gee, I really appreciate you. Spending the time with me. Yeah, my pleasure. And keep up the good work. And here, I'm, now I'm going to shut off Pro Tools. I'm shutting off my Pro Tools. This has been an interview with Jonathan Runman. Please go to his website, like his Facebook page, and tweet and snap at him as soon as you can. His latest release, Reservoir, is available on his Bandcamp page. Check out their horror film, Far Stempy, Two Eyes, on YouTube, and go support all of his awesome music. We love if you take a minute to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll return the favor and read it on the show. You've been listening to Create, Explode, Repeat. I'm Mr. G. Thanks for listening.